Hey, if you're visiting for the first time or if you're visiting with us, you've come at a good point. Uh, today we are starting and launching a new series. We just we finished up our stu- a year-long study of the book of 1 Samuel, and then we did a, a, a short study on the attributes of God. Well, today we launch into a study of the book of Galatians. And if you're new at Christ Community Church, what we tend to like to do before we jump into a book is so that we don't lose the forest for the trees, we do uh, basically an introductory. If you have ever have one of those study Bibles that have an introductory to the book, consider that's what this sermon is. It's a way to get categories so that as we jump into the study of the book more in depth, there's this kind of familiar uh, land work, uh, milestones for you. There's a kind of topography in your mind about the book. Uh, next week, we will have a fantastic reading service where now that we have the categories for the book, we can hear in, in just one good flowing reading how that book fits. And I think that really sets us up well to jump into the in-depth study of it. So today, we're just going to do the introduction. And would you pray with me as we ask God to bless the teaching of his word? Father, we thank you for the gift of being able to sing, Uh, really just getting our our hearts and our minds oriented on who you are and your character and what you have done. Father, maybe for some of us, this is the first time we've actually spent some sustained thought about you and, and recognize your presence in our lives, and so we are grateful for this opportunity. Thank you for men and women who serve us so well by taking their time and leading us, preparing us to hear the word of God being proclaimed. Be with us now. We thank you as we open up this amazing book in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Freedom. Uh, It is one of the deepest yearnings of the human heart. Kingdoms have gone to war for it. Uh, People have sacrificed their lives for it. Nations have been founded upon it. It is, in essence, what we desire. Uh, We especially see the value of freedom when it is taken from us. When our freedoms are taken from us, the orientation of our lives seem to be aimed to getting that back. This is why it's so sad when we see other people stripped of their freedoms. And it's not just physical freedom that we desire. We desire uh, political freedom, religious freedom, the freedom to express our thoughts and desires and to have the freedom to make those known. Freedom is so core to who we are, which is why the only thing sadder than watching someone's freedoms being taken from them is when we watch someone who pursues something and thinking that that's the thing that they want because that's going to make them free, only to realize that that very thing held them even more captive than they realized from before, when that freedom they pursued brought them more slavery. It happens in the obvious and subtle ways. It can happen in, uh, you might have seen in a man or woman who, who, who takes courage from a bottle so that they can be free to be themselves in situations or circumstances where they feel uncomfortable only to realize a year or two later they are now chained to that bottle and they've become someone they no longer recognize. Or the freedom that a man or woman seeks in in experimenting with or expressing their sexuality. Only to be chained by the the despair and the depression and the confusion that comes when the the broken relationships begin to pile up. Freedom and slavery take all kinds of shapes and sizes. And often, the, the, the ones that are most rewarding and the ones that can be most damning are the ones we tend not to think about at all. The most fulfilling freedom and the most damning slavery is that of our own souls. 
into that picture is the New Testament letter to the churches of Galatia. The book of Galatians has been called the Magna Carta of spiritual freedom. It's called the battle cry of the Reformation. It is called the Christian's Declaration of Independence. As a matter of fact, historians say so profound is this book that the, the, the foundation of the Reformation, which by the way we celebrate its 500th anniversary next month, half a millennia of the Protestant Reformation, the foundation of the Reformation was started when Martin Luther wrote his commentary on the book of Galatians. So the question we have is why is this book that was written so long ago, why is it important? What's the relevance to 21st century modern Christians? Because the reality is the people that it was originally written to, like us, often confuse what true freedom is, and sometimes we're not sure what slavery is from freedom, especially when it comes to the things like the gospel. And so today, as I said before we dive into this book chapter by chapter, we just want to have some categories to think about this amazing book. And so I just want to talk about three elements this morning to give you a sense of the book of Galatians. We want to talk about the history of the book of Galatians so that you get the context of the letter, how it all fits, and where did it come from? What were the people like who Paul wrote to? We want to talk about the false teachers of the letter because they're so, they figure so predominantly in the book and they really are the circumstances that motivated Paul to write this book. And then finally, we want to talk about the gospel, which is the center of the entire letter of Galatians. And by putting those kind of categories there, that will help you understand this book much better for our study. Now, n Scripture uh, never takes place in a historical vacuum. That's why I love the Scriptures. Christianity is not rooted in some kind of myth or fairy tale or just handed down oral traditions. It is firmly rooted in historical places and events and situations that actually take place, and it grounds how we understand things and makes it so real to us as people who ourselves are living in a historical time and place. And because Scripture doesn't take place in a vacuum, we need to understand what was the history of certain books of the Bible as we study them. And so that's where we're going to start first, is looking at the history of the Galatians by looking at the people and the churches of Galatia. So we have a map up here. You may recognize that. That's over by the Middle East. I see the Black Sea on the top and the Mediterranean Sea. To the left and down lower would be Israel. Uh, and so that's mostly Asia Minor where these churches take place. Apollobus the historian wrote of the Galatian people and he said that they were the most formidable and warlike nation in all of Asia. They were known for their barbaric and barbarian lawlessness. The Galatians, they originated in what was what we'd call now Central Europe, kind of where the Danube River is. So uh, countries like Yugoslavia, Romania, and Hungary were where they originated from. They migrated as far east as modern-day England, and they were called there the Celts. That name might sound familiar to you. In France, they were called the Gauls. In Asia, where they finally ended up settling, they were called the Galatians. Now, the, they were a very uh, lawless group of people, and until Rome had made Galatia a province, um, which is actually modern-day Turkey, so here's another map of what that same area of land looked like in the first century, uh, first century A.D., until Rome made 
that province, the Galatia, one of their provinces, you can see it's the middle one that's purple. You can hardly see the black Galatia. In 25 BC, uh, at that point, uh, by and large, the Galatians were either mercenaries for the prevailing Greek armies or the Roman armies, until finally Rome decided to make the entire area one of its provinces. As a result, uh, a lot of people from Rome, so Italy would be to the left, and then the, the, the provinces down to the south, moved up into that area, and so a lot of Roman citizens, Jewish citizens, and all, a lot of the ethnicities that comprised the empire then populated that area. The, the kind of original Galatians then kind of moved up north, and so in the south it was very cosmopolitan, and in the north was much more uh, ethnically pure in terms of the original settlers of Galatia. Now, any book of the New Testament, excuse me, let me rephrase that, almost all the books that Paul wrote, if you want to find out the, the origin or why that book was written, it's not really in that book that you go to as much as it is the book of Acts. Of the 13 epistles that Paul writes, we find the origins of most of those epistles, not in the epistles themselves, but in the book of Acts, and we see that's the case with the Galatians. So if you have a Bible, I want you to go to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13 and 14 records, among other things, the first missionary journey of Paul the Apostle. Pa Paul the Apostle? <laughs> Paul the Impossible is really the nickname. Paul the Apostle in 46 and 47 AD. Now, we're not going to read both thir 13 and 14, but I really want to encourage you. It'll take you five minutes to read these chapters at home. And you really should, because these are amazing chapters uh, that chronicle Paul and Barnabas and some other early disciples planting these churches. So what we have in chapter 13, we're going to start it at about verse 16. It records really the first sermon that Paul preaches in Antioch that begins the movement, begins planting the churches in the Galatian area. So in verse 16 of chapter 13, it says, So Paul stood up and motioning with his hands, okay, so I said first hour, this is why I do this all the time. It's biblical, right? We see it right here. Paul motioned with his hands. So I'm just trying to be faithful to the text. So we see that Paul stood up, motioned with his hands, and then he gives this riveting sermon and really recounts the entire history of the people of God. So in verses 17 and 18, he, he talks about the people of God while they're in slavery and oppressed in Egypt and the Exodus. Verses 19 and 20 of this sermon, Paul talks about how through Joshua they entered the promised land and the conquest of Cana. He talks about the rise of the monarchy through Samuel and David and Saul in verses 20 to 22. And then verses 23 to 37, he talks about how David was a foreshadowing of God's soon coming king and God's great deliverance, that David was the foreshadowing of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And then he makes a call for them to respond in verses 38 to 41. So in verse 42, that's where I do want to read to you, this is what they say. So, so after Paul's done great in this great sermon, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. So Paul gives this riveting recounting of redemptive history, and the people are just astounded and beg him to come back the next week with the same message. So skip down to verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Verse 49, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. 
So salvation is spreading throughout the region of Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, through a, a cycle of, of revival and riots, of preaching and persecution. And, and these two chapters are simply amazing. They're one of my favorite chapters in the Bible as, as it recounts this amazing back and forth of the gospel. So we saw in verse 49 and 50 that the word of the Lord began spreading throughout the whole region. But look at verse 50. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and they drove them out of their district. But they didn't get discouraged. They didn't feel like, oh, you, didn't, you rejected me. Oh, woe is me. No, they simply dusted themselves off, and they went out to Iconium. And in chapter 14, it records that they went into Iconium, began preaching the gospel again, and look at verse 1 and 2. And a great number of the Jews and the Greeks believed but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. And you see down in verse 5 that they tried to then stone Paul and Barnabas, and then they just took off to Lystra and to Derbe, and they'd keep this pattern repeated over and over again. They would preach the gospel. People would respond, and they would either be a revival or they responded in a riot. But either way, a church would be planted, and the persecution drove them to the next city, to the next city, to the next city. Friends, persecution from culture is not always a bad thing. How do you think the gospel spreads? If everything was great and comfortable all the time, we would just sit in our nice, cozy little areas. But God in his great love for humanity sometimes turns up the heat and makes his people disperse. And we see that with Paul and Barnabas. Wherever persecution happened, they just kept going on. And I love chapter 14 because here at Lystra, there's a, a, a crippled man, and God uses Paul to bring healing to this man, and the city erupts with joy, and they start crying out, the gods have visited us, and they called Paul Hermes because he was the messenger and spoke a lot, and they called Barnabas Zeus. And so they, Zeus and Hermes have visited us, and they bring out oxen and start slaughtering it, offering sacrifice, throwing garlands at them. And Paul and Barnabas are saying, no, that is the exact opposite of what we want you to do. We're men. We're proclaiming the gospel. But you see here in chapter 14, look at verse 18. Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. So you can imagine that God does something powerfully through these men, and the people respond and think, this is Zeus and Hermes. And Paul and Barnabas say, no, it's not us. But you also see the fickleness of these Galatians, which is a revealing of why this letter was written in the first place. They go from sacrificing and worshiping them, but look at verse 50. The next verse says, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they then stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city. So they're sacrificing him to him, calling him a god one moment, and then they stone him to death, where they think, and throw him out of the city. These Galatians are a very fickle group of people. But I love this again. In chapter 14, they think Paul is dead, or maybe this is a miracle of God. Either case, Paul gets up, dusts himself off, and just moves on again. This is like hardcore church planning right here. Right here, as we're seeing, this is how you plant churches. Regardless of the persecution or the riots, they're going to keep preaching the gospel. And, you know, there, there's something here that we should think about. Now, I'm not advocating this, but in some sense, when I read this, I thought, man, in my life, there ought to be revival or riots happening. <laughs> there's got to be one of the two happening in my life, or maybe I'm not doing what I need to be doing, 
right? If everyone's getting along with me, I obviously am maybe not doing what I ought to be doing because wherever Paul went, people either started repenting or throwing rocks at him, right? Now, I'm not saying we need to live that way, but it's pretty revealing. So this is the, the founding of the churches of Galatia. This is the tumultuous yet joyous yet visceral reality of how these churches came about. Now, the whole conflict that surrounds our book, the writing of our book, uh, began within about a year after these churches being planted. Men had come into these churches, uh, converts to Christianity, we, we assume, and began to teach these converts that in order to be real Christians, that they had to start to obey the food purity and circumcision laws taught in the law of Moses. Now, I know to us we say, well, what does that have to do with any of us? I mean, we don't think about food purity and circumcision laws at all. Certainly, Western society is not affected by these. I mean, true enough, we are consumed with dietary laws of a different nature, right? For those of you who might be vegans or paleos or Atkin diets people, you're into your dietary laws, but it's a completely different kind of thing. That's not what the Jews had in mind. The Jews were not concerned so much with calorie counting and nutritional value as much as they were one's fitness before God. See, our dietary laws are all cosmopolitan, or, you know, just kind of cosmetic. For them, Dietary, well, and health reasons, but for them, the dietary laws determine whether or not you are fit to be in God's presence. Now, let me just explain that because you go, if you're new to Christianity especially, where do all these laws come from, like these dietary laws? Why did they believe that? What's the story with that? Where do these come from? Now, you don't need to turn there, but in the book of Leviticus, and Leviticus, I call it the, the Bible reading graveyard, because if any of you are doing a Bible reading plan, they're doing good with Genesis, they like Exodus, and they hit Leviticus and the wheels fall off because a, a lot of Leviticus is about the rules and, and the, the, the procedure and protocol approaching God. And, and it gets down to the kind of clothes you put to wear, how you, the fabrics you can combine, the seed that you sow, and what you can eat. I remember somebody was reading, they say, what, what, why is all this? I mean, is God so concerned about these rules and laws and all this? And on one hand, yes. Because what he's trying to establish is he is so unlike us that in every way he's different. But, but I also think the practical purpose was that from the moment some a Jewish person, man or woman, got up and got dressed to when they went to work in the field and when they went home to eat, everything they did, they were confronted with the reality that God has something to say about what I'm doing right now. God has something to say about every aspect of my life. Uh, unlike the Amalekites or the Jebusites or all these other religions who, as long as you appease them with sacrifice, they kind of let you did whatever you want. But the people would look on the nation of Israel and say, what is with your God? You have all these rules for everything. And they say, that's because our God is a part of everything. And so, so these dietary laws were to kind of keep them unique and particular. Right? And, and that happens true to this day. For, that's exactly why meat lovers are never going to marry vegetarians, right? It's because the, what do you do when you court? You share a meal. So our diet actually separates us or brings fellowship together, right? So, so there was a sense in which God was keeping his people separate by some of these dietary laws. So it wasn't just nutritional value, but being fit to be part of God's people. Secondly, what about circumcision? Now, in the West, um, unless you're Jewish, no one no longer circumcises as a religious rite, right? That's just something that we have done for health reasons. 
But to the Jews who were known for circumcision, it wasn't just for health reasons. Quite frankly, they were, they were unaware of the health reasons. It was a matter of obedience to God. In Genesis 17, verses 9 through 14, let's, let's turn there so you can see it in the text. Genesis 17, verses 9 through 14, circumcision was actually a way to ratify the covenant and to show through the, the kind of the agreement of circumcision that you were one of God's people. Here it is, Genesis 17, verse 9. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Verse 12, he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall be circumcised. So my covenant will be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So what on the surface seems like very irrelevant ethnic issues turns out to be a controversy over how do we know we're accepted by God and what is required to be one of His. What seems like this bizarre, archaic dietary laws and circumcision is really an issue of how do we know we're accepted by God and how do we know we're part of His people. Well, when you look at it from that perspective, these are very relevant questions. The challenge is we're, we're kind of going through a lot of the culture and ethnic issues, but the, the issues of the heart are identical to us. It just leads us to the second feature of Galatians that we need to understand to, to understand this book, and that is the false teachers of Galatians. Who were these false teachers? Now, throughout the book, as we study, and as you're going to hear next week, they're being mentioned. Sometimes there's a predominant leader, maybe, or a group of them, but who were they? The best we can understand, because when you read Galatians, we we don't get the conversation of the false teachers. It's kind of like listening to one side of a phone conversation. We're just hearing the responses. The best we understand is that these false teachers were Hebrew Christians who believed in the validity of portions of the Old Covenant. Now, keep in mind, when Christianity exploded on the scene and the gospel started to go through the nations, in Acts chapter 2, where the church was born, the the church was exclusively Jewish at the time. Throughout the book, early chapters of the book of Acts, thousands were being converted, but almost to a man and a woman, they were Jewish. And keep in mind, they, they didn't have this kind of developed Christianity. As a matter of fact, the term Christian didn't even exist. According to Acts chapter 9, verse 2, they were just called people of the way. Uh, We didn't get the name Christian, I believe, until Acts chapter 11 in the city of Antioch. When these Jews became believers, they weren't handed a copy of the New Testament and had a new believers class for them. It was just a recognition that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, God's Savior for His people, and they wanted to be a part of what God was doing now. But, but they also then in that process brought with them many of the beliefs and practices of Judaism, two of which were the food purity laws and circumcision rites. 
and they thought that those need to be imposed on these new converts to Christianity as well. They, they didn't think that through. They just reckoned that if that's God's covenant to us, that's got to be God's covenant from here on out. Now, I want to show you in the passages of Scripture where that's true. So go to Acts chapter 11. And, and folks, Acts chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, whatever issue you might think challenges Christians within churches today, whatever it might be, um, whether you like hymns or contemporary music or uh, you like pews or lazy boy chairs, you like stadium seating or whatever it is, whatever issue tends to divide Christians today is nothing compared to these issues. I mean, this was massive to them, but they were able to work it through, right? So much to the point where we don't even think about it, which gives me hope whenever there's any issue that raises in the church today. Acts chapter 11, verse 2 and 3, here's what the passage says. So, when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Notice, there were enough of them within the church that they were kind of called the circumcision party, right? Kind of like this group would be the contemporary music party, and this would be the hymn party, or whatever it might be, there was enough of them that they actually were recognized as a group within the church. Acts chapter 21, verse 20. I'll just read it. You don't need to go there. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they're all zealous for the law. He's saying that as a good thing, but we recognize now that this laid the seeds for some problems. So the gospel was spreading, and Jews were getting converted, and, and they were zealous for the law, and they believed that, okay, the circumcision rights and moral and dietary rights apply to Christians too. And so now they need to come under that. Now, can you imagine a Gentile, if I've got to be a Christian, I need to do what? You know, I mean, that's asking them a lot. And they said, that's just what you need to do if you're actually going to be part of God's people. Here's the first lesson we learned from the false teachers. They were sincere. Many of them were. We're going to find a few weren't. We'll read that. But many of them were sincere. But they allowed their traditional understanding of their cultural context, and they superimposed that to a new movement that God was doing. And they, because of that, they missed the boat entirely. They, the lesson is that God is always working, but oftentimes we are confined in our own kind of cultural context. And we don't realize this, but that determines how we actually even read God's word and apply it to our lives. And because it's a, the culture we're a part of, we don't even recognize it. So we don't even question the assumptions. That's what they did. My point is, they were sincere, but they were sincerely wrong. So much so that in Galatians 1.6, Paul said, they are bringing to you another gospel. This is not the gospel of grace. Sincerity does not equal biblical fidelity. They need to, we need to constantly go to the scriptures, understand the word of God, and apply it consistently with our life. But now, however, Paul also realized that it, all these men or, and or women teaching this, they weren't all just sincere. Some of them were insincere. Galatians chapter 6, verse 12 I'm going to read it from a different translation because I think they do a good job of teasing it out. Though, Paul writes this, those who are forcing you to be circumcised, they want to look good to others. They don't want to be persecuted for teaching that the cross of Christ alone can save. What's he getting at? See, in, in the AD 40s, there was a rise of Jewish nationalism 
uh, that was sweeping through the Jewish nation. Uh, you might be familiar with the group called the Zealots. They're up here in the New Testament. The Zealots were leading the charge and were attempting to purify Israel by cutting off all association, associations with Gentiles, and they were a radical bunch. Uh, there is a group called the Sicarii. They are named after their weapon of choice. It was a kind of like a stylus, but with a razor-sharp point, uh, about, about the size of a pen. And they would mix themselves in in cr- crowds, and people who fraternize with Gentiles or compromising the law of God or whatever it might be, they would assassinate them simply by pulling out the Sakari, sticking it right through their throat quickly, pulling it out, and walking away. Um, Judas Iscariot, Iscariot is a derivative of Sakari. He was a member of this radical wing, which is why when Jesus wasn't the Messiah, the political delivery he assumed him to be, he was more inclined to betray him. The point is, this was a very real and radical group of zealots, so much so that it led to the Jewish war that started in AD 66 that culminated in the destruction of Jerusalem and the devastation of the temple in AD 70. The Romans had had it by this point, and they came down with a hard fist. So, obviously, these Jewish converts to Christianity were somewhat afraid of this rising radical group of the zealots. And so, as Gentiles were being converted to a kind of new thing of Judaism, the way they thought they could mediate this was by making Gentiles submit to the markers of Judaism, which would have been the dietary law and circumcision. So, Paul's contention here is, These people are not even concerned about the truth of the gospel. They're only concerned about cultural accommodation for the persecution that the gospel message might bring. That was tragic. Now, the, the question is, what exactly were they teaching? Now, we already hinted at that. You already kind of know. But this phrase comes up about six times in the book of Galatians, works of the law, right? Works of the law. We see it uh, three times in, in Galatians chapter 2, and we see it in Galatians chapter 3, verse 2, 5, and 10. We can't say more beyond what I've said this morning about what the works of the law are. There may have been more, but the primary contention was this, that the work of Christ, what he did on the cross, is not sufficient that we need to have our own works as well. And we say, well, why does this matter? I mean, they they weren't rejecting the core engine of the gospel of who Jesus was. They weren't saying he wasn't God. They weren't saying that he didn't go to the cross. They're just saying, hey, this is good for us. Why don't you guys do it too? Why does that make such a big deal? Because Paul rightly understood that if the Galatians gave in however small to a belief in salvation by any other means other than God's free grace, that God's grace that overcomes our sin and rescues us from our damnation, which he alluded to in Galatians 1.3, if in any small way he gave into that, it would distort the gospel and it wouldn't be the gospel. It would be a religion, it would be a moral religion, but it wouldn't be salvation. Because man would not be worshiping God for his benevolent, abundant goodness to us. Man, in fact, would actually be worshiping a kind of moral, achieving version of himself. And so Paul stuck a flag and said, this is not what we are not going to compromise this. Now, the reality is, on one level, understanding the gospel is very easy intellectually. But the reality is, it is so hard, or maybe I should say so easy, to functionally live with a different understanding of the gospel, and it happens subtly. 
And the scariest thing of all is that it changed the message of grace into a message of kind of moral achievement or works righteousness. And, and I just want to put on the screen several examples to show you how this happens. And here's the reality. Chances are all of us in this room, myself included, are guilty of at least a few of these. But that goes to show how much we, we, we misunderstand the gospel and, and rely on ourselves. So here they are. Religion says this, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Yes, I obeyed God, he accepts me. But the gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Religion tells us that, that, that the motivation is based on fear and insecurity. I don't know if God really loves me, but if I go to church every Sunday and then maybe two services on Sunday, he really loves me. It's based on fear and insecurity. The gospel says, my motivation is based on grateful joy. I want to be with God and his people because of the great things he's done for me. Religion says, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I am angry at God or myself since I believe that anyone who is good deserves a comfortable life. But the gospel says, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I struggle. But I know that while God may allow this for my training, he will exercise his fatherly love within my trial. Right? Religion says, when I am criticized, I get furious or devastated because it's essential for me to think of myself as a good person. Threats to that self-image must be destroyed at all costs. But the gospel says, when I am criticized, I struggle. But it's not essential for me to think of myself as a good person because my identity is not built on my performance but on God's love for me in Christ. Just a couple more. I just want to tease this out. Religion says, my prayer life consists largely of petition and only heats up when I'm in need. My main purpose in prayer is to control my circumstances. But the gospel says, my prayer life consists of generous stretches of praise and adoration. My main purpose is fellowship with him. Religion says, my self-view swings between two poles. If and when I'm living up to my standards, I feel confident, but then I'm prone to be proud and unsympathetic to people who fail. If and when I'm not living up to my standards, I feel humble but not confident. I feel like a failure. But the gospel says something radically different. My self-view is not based on a view of myself as a moral achiever in Christ I am at once sinful and lost, yet accepted. I love this. I am so bad, he had to die for me, and so loved, he was glad to die for me. This leads me to deeper humility as well as deeper confidence without either sniveling or snobbery. I think I have one more here. My identity and self-worth are based mainly on how hard I work or how moral I am, so I must look down on those I perceive as lazy or immoral. I disdain and feel superior to others. The gospel says radically different. My identity and self-worth are centered on the one who died for his enemies, including me. Only by sheer grace am I what I am. So I can't look down on those who believe or practice something different from me. I have no inner need to win arguments. Last one. Since I look to my pedigree or performance for my spiritual acceptability, my heart manufactures idols, talents, moral record, personal discipline, social status, whatever. 
I absolutely have to have them. So they are my main hope, meaning, happiness, security, and significance. Whatever I say, I believe about God. And, but the gospel says this, I have many good things in my life, family, work, whatever it might be, but none of these good things are ultimate things to me. I don't absolutely have to have them. So there is a limit to how much anxiety, bitterness, and despair they can inflict on me when they are threatened and lost. And there, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of more of those I have, but you get the point. We're all there on this spectrum of believing that somehow it's me and not completely God's grace and accepting me. And the, the, hard, the reason that's hard is because if, if it really is all God, then I bring nothing to the table. I can make no demands. I can take no control. I, can, I have to give up control. And that's why the gospel is really hard to get at the level it needs to be gotten in us. And that leads us to our last point, the gospel in Galatians. As I said, it is so simple, but, but I think because of human sin, it's, that it's so blinding, it's easy to twist and turn the free gift of grace into some kind of system where I kind of prove myself somehow. But that's not the gospel. And it's hard to think about because, because as we've seen, the gospel is so expansive in its application. It's so massive that sometimes it's under, hard to understand what it is. Even though all through the New Testament and the Old Testament, we see it. So Galatians chapter 1, verse 3, if you're a note taker, write that down. John chapter 3, verse 16, one of the most well-known verses there are. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. All of these are an accounting of the gospel, but because life is so nuanced and different, they all nuance and emphasize a different reality. But that causes us to kind of get confused. So, so what, what is the elements of the gospel here? But all of them get at that, and all of them share in common the thread. That man's state is in, we are in a state of rebellion against God. And we are in a desperate need to be rescued. We don't need more information. We need rescue. And God sends his rescuer because we cannot rescue ourselves. And if we're willing to trust in his salvation in that rescue, well, then we're rescued. That really is the kernel of the gospel. It is by grace alone. We talked about that. God's benevolent favor towards humanity. It is through faith alone, me trusting in a way that personally invests me in this grace of God, and it's in Christ alone, not in anything else. It is, it is not grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and be a member of this particular church. That's not the gospel. We have changed it if that's what we believe. It is not grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and hold the right social or political beliefs. If we believe that, that's not the gospel. We've changed it. It's another gospel. It's not grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and meet the expectations of South Orange County cultural Christianity. That's not the gospel. It is not those things plus whatever spiritual discipline I happen to enjoy, but I'm going to put on you and expect you to do the same. That's not the gospel. It is grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and that's it. My total righteousness, as we just all sang. We sang that, remember that? <laughs> that's it. Holiness is Christ in me, that's it. It's not holiness is Christ in me and my perfect church attendance or my tithing or anything else. And it's also not me overcoming that particular besetting sin of anger or gossip or lust, no. If I think that's what makes me righteous, I've missed the point. The gospel's so radical 
It says that, look, even if you can't overcome that persistent sin, you're accepted and loved, and God views you as perfect because of the righteousness of Christ. That's the gospel. Now, we might get nervous and say, well, if, if we teach that, what, people are going to live any way they want. Well, what about pursuing holiness of life? Friends, and this is why at Christ Community Church, we're always going to preach sin. We're always going to preach about those things, not because we want to be one of those kinds of churches, but because we understand that unless you get that, and once you get that, once you hear the gospel, there's no way we can stop you from living a changed life. When you realize the depth of your sin and the grandeur of his love for you, you can't stop yourself from wanting to be different. It just flows from you. But it's first when we understand both elements that we can appreciate them both in what they really are. Galatians, as we name the series, Fight for the Gospel, is all about the gospel. And at the center of the gospel is the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ. And it's summed up so well in the lines of this poem that I close with this morning. Christ for sickness, Christ for health, Christ for poverty, and Christ for wealth. Christ for joy, Christ for sorrow, Christ today and Christ tomorrow. Christ my life and Christ my light, Christ for morning, noon, and night. Christ when all around gives sway, Christ my everlasting stay. Christ my beloved friend, Christ my pleasure without end. Christ my shepherd, I his sheep, Christ himself my soul to keep. Christ my leader, Christ my peace, Christ hath wrought my soul's release. Christ my righteousness divine, Christ for me, for he is mine. Christ my teacher, Christ my guide, Christ my rock, in Christ I hide. Christ the everlasting bread, Christ his precious blood did shed. Christ my master, Christ my head. Christ who for my sins has bled. Christ my glory, Christ my crown, Christ the plant of great renown, Christ my comforter on high, Christ my hope, he draws ever nigh. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for our brother Paul, who drew a line in the sand so that the church in his day and our own would have to wrestle with the true grace and free gift that is in the gospel. Father, it's so easy to make the gospel about religiosity, about certain standards and things we do, but it's not. It's about the standard and thing that Christ did. Father, help us to be so amazed by the work of Christ that our works are not even part of the equation. We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.